The sun has left and forgotten me. It's dark, I cannot see. Your stories don't define you, but how you tell them will. Hi, I'm Sarah El Elkins. Oh, I'm gonna have to start again there. Your stories don't define you, but how you tell them will. Hi, I'm Sarah Elkins, your host and chief storymaker of Elkins Consulting. I call myself chief storymaker because I truly believe that to tell the best stories, the most inspiring and meaningful stories that have happened in your life, you have to make those stories. And sometimes that simply means being fully present in your day-to-day -day life. A quick reminder for our listeners before we get started, if you're interviewing for a job, I have my new course out, Get Hired Job Interview Storytelling. It's just $199 and it includes a pretty great course online, but it also includes small group storytelling practice sessions so you can be prepared for your next interview. Visit elkinsconsulting.com for more information. Now, you've been listening to this podcast. You understand that what I really love to get to are the stories that have created or shifted our identities over time. It's not just about whether you're authentic, but how you're authentic. And what does authentic really mean if our identity can shift over time? Today's guest is Tom Jacobs, and you are going to love these stories because as you know, I love to travel and I truly believe that when you travel, you become more comfortable in your skin because you start to understand how your identity maybe was shaped over environmental and relationship factors when you were a kid. And you get to really decide if that's truly you when you leave that environment. Tom, thank you so much for joining me today on Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will. Thanks for having me, sir. I'm really happy to be here. Well, I, when we first started chatting about your adventures and travel, I just got so excited, um, partly because I was much braver younger when I was traveling. Like I, I studied um, abroad in Australia when I was 19 and then hitchhiked through New Zealand by myself for two weeks on my way back. I was so brave. And, and I remember coming back and feeling like this awful culture shock coming back mm -hmm. to the U.S., and now when I've been reading more about how people who live overseas or leave their, their homes for long periods of time to live in other places, they become more confident in their identity because they've questioned all of the things that they believed about themselves and about the world, that they created those beliefs based on environmental and and uh, cultural factors. So they get to question those all of a sudden. And some of them are sticky. Some of them, they're like, oh, yeah, that really is part of me. And then others are like, whoa, maybe that's not really how I see myself anymore. Yeah, totally. So what are you thinking about? When it, what's Well, actually, let me, let me back up a little because I love to start these conversations by asking my guest to share something about themselves that most people don't know. And then mm -hmm. we can dive into that question. So that's, that's a really good question. Um, most people don't know that I play viol or played violin. I haven't played it in a while, but I played violin when I, I started when I was four years old and uh, all the way up into high school and almost into college as well. But um, 
yeah, we're very, very musical family, but that, that was, uh, that was a really great experience most of the time, <laughs> except for yeah. practicing, but that, uh, yeah, music and children, like any parent should definitely like it, it, there's so much advantage to learning to read music and, and it helps with math and storytelling and just personality and emotions and all that. So like, yeah, I think. Not many people know that I, I used to play violin and did performances and stuff. I didn't know that. And I love that, of course, you know, as a musician, anytime one of my guests says, oh, yeah, I, I played the violin or I tried playing the cello or whatever, it lights me up because um, it's it's so hard to learn an instrument and especially as an adult. But as a kid, I I don't know, some parents, they they push it too hard and then the kid just loses interest. But the ones that just explore whatever instrument that kid is interested in, I love that. We found here in Helena that our little music store will let you rent an instrument, even if you're not in a band, for mm. a pretty small monthly fee. And eventually, you if you stay renting it, you pay it off and you own that instrument. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And it's it's inexpensive. Like I now have a piccolo. I've been playing flute again. Love that. And I just <laughs> went over answer. to Piccolo's. That's the name of the music store. The first time <laughs> I went in, I said, I want to rent a Piccolo. They said, we don't have any in stock. I'm like, how can Piccolo's not have a Piccolo? <laughs> but um, they they ended up having one returned that had been rented. They cleaned it up. They tuned it up. And now for, I don't know, $34 a month, $24 a month, something like that, oh I have God. a Piccolo. And so, you know, I'm picking it up. It's hard. Woo. Piccolo mm -hmm. is so much harder than flute because your your breathing is so different. The the embouchure of your lips has yeah. to be so tight. Oh. It's really different. But anyway, oh, this fun. lights me up. Thank you for sharing that. No worries. <laughs> so when you think about your music, mm. what what's the what's the first image that pops into your head? Like when you think about when you played violin. That's uh, yeah. I, I had two images right when you said that. So the, the first image was where I was training or where I would, uh, where the teachers were. And it was called the Purcell School of Music. And it was in uh, Iowa City, Iowa, and near, near the University of Iowa. And I was living, our family was living in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, so about 30 minutes. But it was this beautiful old building. And they had, I think it used to be, a, a it must have been a school at some point, like a, like a traditional school because they had a recital hall in it and then like it was all wood and it had this really distinct woody smell to it you know and, and then you're playing it's all strings that they taught there so then all the instruments are wood and it was just it was just this whole like forest in, inside right. it, was, it was so great and then the the second image was of um in high school i was in an orchestra that toured Europe for a month. And so the, the image that I just had was the, the silly uniforms that we had and then the, the buses that we, were, that we were on. And I have this distinct memory of one of the bus drivers and he was Swedish and his name was Sven Svensson. Like, <laughs> of course it was. Like, how much do your parents hate you for giving you two last names or two first names or something? So, but he was a really good driver. <laughs> he 
got around those small European uh, uh, you know, city streets with uh, a huge bus, a tour bus. So Which is fun. crazy. We just got back from Italy and, and those medieval villages with those streets. We almost had a European vacation moment. Remember when Chevy Chase drove through the arch and got stuck? We were so yes. close to one of those. So <laughs> driving, I saw people driving those buses and I'm like, oh. oh, how are you doing that without hitting every other car and every curve? And yeah. So yeah. Um, first, I what I understand about some of the, the Swedish people that have these names, Sven Svensson, is that that's actually a nickname. Oh. So Sven is actually nicknamed because of his last name. Ah. Okay, that makes so, sense. That's just what I've heard. I and and anyone, any listeners, please comment on this. Send me an email. Tell me if this is correct or if I'm totally um, misremembering something that somebody told me. But the other thing that popped into my head as you were telling these stories is these full visceral memories of the scent and the sound and the vision and the especially the scent, but then the the uniforms and and what you remember of them in this kind bus driver and um it it makes me think he probably has no idea that there's a person how many decades later telling the story of how kind he was and how amazed he was at his dexterity being able to drive this big bus through these little villages i mean think about that um how we tell (laughs) stories about other people what that says about us and what we remember Absolutely. Yeah. And it, and it, that's part of, you know, really good storytelling is, is being able to, I call, I call it color and texture, bringing color and texture to your story. Because a lot of times, if I, if I would have just said, you know, it was an old school that I went to, everybody would have a different image of what that school would be. Like if, even if I said, oh yeah, I was driving my car you have a different idea of what that car is versus what I have a different idea of what, what I'm saying. However, by adding in that color and texture of the story, like uh, the smell of the wood and the, the recital hall, or if I were the car example, it was a old beat up BMW, you know, three series, you know, everybody now knows what that image is and that draws the listener in. Because now you're on the same page in terms of the details of the story. And that's what kind of annoys me a lot about kind of some storytellers is that they don't have enough texture to their story mm-hmm. to really bring me into it. Exactly. You have to set the stage, so to speak, yeah. right? You have to have that person sitting next to you in the car and mm-hmm. having that conversation with your kid in the back seat. Ah, I love that. I knew this was going to be solid. Um, so <laughs> let's let's get back to this idea of um, how your identity might shift over time. You asked me a question. My my comment was, my next book is is about authenticity and identity and how um, we can change over time. We can choose to change. Um, and one of the I've interviewed a man named Christian Jarrett, Dr. Christian Jarrett, that is a, an authority on that. And he actually does research on how our narratives, our personal narratives and the stories people tell about us can shift our identity over time. And mm. um, Lester Young, who was um, imprisoned for murder when he was, I don't know, 18, 19, and through his time in prison, 
it changed and became the man he is today. So he really believes that we can change who we are. And what was your question? Is it your identity or? Yeah. Is it really your identity that changes or your perception of who you are that changes? Because like when you said that immediately, I was like, has my identity really changed? And certain elements, I think, have changed over time. Um, But I think that's a part of society in terms of kind of forcing you into a title or an identity. But, you know, what's deep inside of me, like who I am, hasn't changed. But that perception of how it comes across to other people, I think, does change over time, if that makes sense. What came to mind, yes, it makes sense. And what came to mind for me was when I spoke with Lester Young, Mm. I was thinking this man has a good heart. And my guess is that he always had a good heart, but circumstances led him to behaviors that weren't in alignment with that. Uh, Yep. Yep. Totally. Totally understand that. Yep. Yeah. And I think also, I guess what comes to mind is that distinction between identity and authenticity, because um, I had a client that said, I, I just need to be a better communicator. And I said, well, what, what do you think is going wrong? And he said, well, I, I, I think I, um, I think I irritate people. I think I, I know I'm just kind of an asshole. That's what he said. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. And um, how? And he said, well, I, I come across as abrupt sometimes, uh, abrasive, whatever. And I said, okay, that doesn't necessarily make you an asshole. He goes, yeah, but I, I, I'm kind of an asshole. And I said, well, how's that working for you? He said, I don't care what people think. <laughs> and I said, but you want to be a better communicator. So clearly you kind of have to care what some people think. Yeah. And over time, we we started to get into that. Can you change that? And do you want to change that? Mm. And eventually he came back to me probably a year later and said, now I understand all the work that we did together because I had this emergency and somebody showed up for me that I didn't expect to show up for me. And all I wanted to do was be the person that he showed up for. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. So he did change. Mm. He, he's, yeah. he's, I mean, he's still kind of an asshole, right? But he cares now. And so he, he has shifted the way that he presents his words. Mm-hmm. He's still the same guy, but he's yeah. he's caring about how people are perceiving his words. Yeah, I different, totally agree. Right? Yeah, it's different. Yeah. yeah. So when That's you think about your topic, yeah. I, well, I could I could go on, and I'm ask. I love to ask questions about this. What do you think of that? So when you think about your your job as a storyteller. And how your travel and experiences have shifted that perception of your job as a storyteller. Tell me about the time when you decided to move away from Iowa City. And mm. and that the transitions from because when we talked before, you told me about these transitions all across the country and then overseas. So what yeah. what comes to mind when you think about those adventures? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting 
when you were talking about your your travels and backpacking and all that in high school and all that, you know, and and being free and having this culture shock, I almost had the exact opposite experience where I was so focused on school, academics, and a job to pay for school and academics and and, and going through in high school and college and all that, that I denied a lot of experiences except for that one month tour in in Europe with the orchestra. That was my first experience outside of the country and you know at 16 years old, but it was in a in a group, so it was very right. very well protected, even though we were staying at help host families, which was you know my first experience at the opening of the world and different cultures. And I think that helps and that definitely helped me just kind of appreciate other people that have different beliefs, different culture, different ways of talking, different language, you know, everything. And I remember one, (laughs) two two experiences. So this was in 1987, 1988, 87, 88, dating myself. So it must have been 87, 86, 87, because I was 16, 17 years old. And, um, it was still the cold war was still going on and we were in Germany in West Germany and the host family that I was staying at took us to the border of we East and West. Mm. Not, no, not, not in Berlin, just it was oh, okay. in like mainland Germany. And, you know, I, I saw the, the DMZ, if you will. And, and they said, well, you know, there's a hundred yards of mines so in a fence and guard posts, and I could see the soldiers with the machine guns from East Germany, the ones from West Germany. And I was just, and, and I remember what the host father said to me, he was like, this is the end of the world right here. This is the end of civilization at this border. And it just, I was like, oh my gosh, this is unreal. Like we don't have that experience in the U.S., Right. And, and so it just really kind of, it was, it was amazing. And then a, a funny, another funny experience, we were on the tour bus that Svensson was driving <laughs> and one of the, uh, one of the chaperones, we were on the border of Czechoslovakia and they said, and right here on our left-hand side is where the iron curtain is. And I remember one of the, <laughs> one of the students said, I don't see a curtain. <laughs> of course they did. Of course. I, <laughs> I like, knew that was coming. It's a big it's Iowa. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh. So yeah. But it was it was that was a really interesting time. And I think we're kind of approaching a similar time now um, mm-hmm. with everything that's happening in the world. And I think it would do everybody like <laughs> in terms of how we appreciate others and how we tolerate and understand to get outside of our comfort zone and make those stories, make those travels. Because when you're in your own reality of your day-to-day, and this, I was having a conversation with one, one of my um, uh, employees the other day, because they're like, you know, Tom, you're not being very consistent with your posts. You're only posting on social media, like when you're traveling. And I was like, yeah, because like, Every day is every day. Like there's there's nothing happening. Like right. even though there what is. What am I supposed but, to post? Right. Yeah, what am I right. like what I had for lunch today? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> it's boring. And but when you're traveling, you're creating these stories and you know that shows up on Instagram and Facebook now. 
but even as as a youngster before social media happened um those are the experiences that will stay with you for life and give you that broader experience and i really wish that more people did that to have to be able to empathize with other people and and just you know, get along better right about that how how leaving well one thing is we moved around a lot across the us when i was a kid so i had to learn to make friends i went to four different elementary schools um and then we settled in in colorado springs where i went to middle school and high school and then it was junior high back then <laughs> and then we moved and then um i went to college in fort collins so i was still in colorado but it was a really different culture colorado springs versus fort collins it's like the difference between uh, new york city and buffalo new york right <laughs> like very different cultures and um but then i studied abroad in australia which i i went to a place where i spoke the language i i think that was a little i wouldn't say cowardly but definitely taking a safer option um but i can tell you that kind of like going into the the boondocks of arkansas the boondocks of australia outside of the big cities it's hard to understand it's like being in in wales you know you hear right. the accent you're like wait what that was english that doesn't sound like english <laughs> Um, but like you, there was a student in our group, but we were college students. So this guy should have known better, but we were eating in one of the school cafeterias and they, they toast their toasts, their toasters are not like the, the stand-up toasters like we have in the U S they're flat and they toast on one side. So if you want it toasted both sides, you have to actually flip the bread at some point. <laughs> and he's like, ah. This is ridiculous. They don't even know how to toast their bread. <laughs> and I remember looking at him and I said out loud, I I, I don't know what, I, I used to be very shy, but I said out loud, Dave, why are you here? Just go home if you don't want to see things that are different from, from what you're used to. Just go home. Don't expand your brain because you don't, you don't belong here. Just go. <laughs> Either that or get used to seeing things that are different from what you're used to seeing. Grow up. And he was so embarrassed that, of course, he was angry because he was embarrassed. And he didn't talk to me for a while. Um, but that's that's what I think about when I think about um, travel and exploring. And what do you mean they don't do it right? Yeah. Really? <laughs> is, is that where you're going to? Wow. <laughs> Well, there's probably a reason so that the Vegemite will spread easier on the <laughs> toasted side or something. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. Right? Uh, who knows? And Or maybe that's just how they like it. Yeah. They like it to be a little soft on one side and a little crisp on the other. Like, that. okay. Like that. They don't eat <laughs> peanut butter in, in Australia either. Try to get a jar of peanut butter in England. But um, it doesn't exist there <laughs> because that's not something they eat. So... Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about one of my favorite stories that you told, and you just barely glanced over it when we talked for our short um, introductory call, was when 2020 hit and where you were and how mm. you ended up where you are now. So awesome. Yeah, share. <laughs> so um, a little backstory on why I started traveling kind of later in life. So I, I owned a fitness center for nine and a half years in Houston, Texas. And I sold that in 2018. Yeah, I think 2018. And um, 
And and I and I did that because one, I was just getting bored with the fitness industry at the time. And as a serial entrepreneur, I was ready for my next thing. But I didn't know what that next thing is, but I knew for sure that I didn't want to be stuck to one spot with a brick and mortar business. And so I designed a business where I could be a remote worker and work anywhere in the world. And so I started on my adventure of moving to a different place. And the first, the first place I went was Mexico City for 30 days. And I actually put together a, a little, um, little five-minute video. I think it's on my YouTube channel. It's the 30-day experiment. Because the idea was, if I can do this for 30 days and live in a completely different place, granted, it was a two-hour flight from Houston, so it was close enough. If, if things really got bad, I could just you know fly home. But... I really wanted to see, like, could I keep my business going? Could I keep a schedule? Could I do everything and travel and do all this while being away from home? And it worked great. Like my business expanded. I like had more clients. I had more focus. I was able to do more things and I was just, and, and explore and, learned some Spanish as well. So I had a tutor that came through like every day and, and, and taught me some Spanish. And it, it just, it was such a great experience. I was like, I don't want this to end at all. So then when I got back to the US, I spent a couple months and then booked a flight to Thailand, to Bangkok and to Chiang Mai and to Phuket for just over three months. So all, you know, living there in three, three months and, um, and, and then so I was like, oh, this is amazing. And then I'd met some other travelers that had been to like Bali and uh, the Philippines and uh, you know, Japan and, and Vietnam and all there. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. And so my next trip then was to, to Europe. And I spent you know, another couple months in Portugal and UK and, um, and Spain. And then, uh, and then came back to the US for a couple, <laughs> couple months. And then went to the Philippines for, and I was going to spend a year in the Philippines. So this was November of nine of 19, 2019, November 15th of, of um, the 2019. And so I got on this flight off to the Philippines with like two bags or three bags, my laptop for sure. And I, I landed and uh, kind of got the lay of the land. I rented a house and I was kind of out in the boondocks actually. And I, I realized on that time, while I like the solitude and kind of the, the inner workings, I can only deal with that for so long. So I was like, right. I got to get out of here because, you know, like the running, quiet. <laughs> if, it was it was hard to just kind of live <laughs> at times, mm -hmm. even though I had a, a live-in maid who cooked and cleaned for me every day, which was amazing. Wow. <laughs> I know. It was, and, and it's insane what I, what she charged me. Uh, as well as like two hundred dollars mm -hmm. a month, I think. But yeah, um, yeah that's crazy. But um, then you know, I was getting bored, and I was like, okay, I'm done. I'm done here. I want to move to a city, so I'm going to move to Bangkok and you know live a year in in in, in Bangkok. And so I was had some appointments set up in the U.S., some speaking engagements, some teaching, and some events that I wanted to attend. So I got on a flight or I booked a flight to the U.S. Um, in March of 2020. Mm -hmm. And I got a call from the airline and said, oh, we, we 
canceled the flight that you were on. Uh, so we put you on the next day flight, which would have been like the 17th. And I was like, yeah, that's not going to work for me because I have other flights and going other places in the U.S. So can you move me the day before? And say, no, we, we don't have a flight that day. How about the day before that? I said, yeah, we can do that. So on March 5th, and I'm so, so glad that I did that too. I had no idea what was going to happen. Because then no on one the did. 15th, no one. <laughs> right. And then on, on the 15th, you know, hearing the news and all this, I'm like, I'm really glad I'm leaving. And then they announced that they were shutting down all the airports in the Philippines on the 15th. I was literally on the last flight out of Cebu to Taipei and then Taipei onto the US on the 15th. And so I had a, because I changed the flight, I had a two day layover in Taipei. And uh, before then going on, I was like, oh, that's cool. I've never been to Taipei, Taiwan ever before. And that sounds kind of cool. People have said it's a pretty nice city. So I was like, I get here and I explore and do a lot of cool things. And, and then hearing the news, and I'm like, oh, this is really getting bad. And all my events got canceled in the U.S. And I'm like, well, why the heck am I going back to the U.S.? I think I'm going to stay. And so I just made that decision to stay in Taiwan. And, you know, for the 14 days that, you know, COVID's going to like, you know, blow over and, you know, everybody's going to quarantine for 14 days and then it's just going to be fine. And so that, that two day layover has turned into three years and two months now. I and I just, I just say, and I, you know, it's funny because I had shipped like a box of clothes and things to Bangkok to a friend of mine there to hold until I got there. And I was like, Oh crap! Now I don't have like all this other stuff, so he just shipped it over to me here. But um, yeah, I mean, having that almost detachment of a location, mm-hmm. you know, you know, I ha- still had my house in in Houston, but you know, I'd rented it out and doing the Airbnb thing. I'd already sold my car, um, so I, I didn't have all the attachments to a place. I was like, that made it really easy to stay in one spot. Uh, or to just just to just like go or not or not. Well, I think I'll just stay here, you know, and mm-hmm. and not not think twice of of it. And I, I think that came from all of the other experiences that I had leading up to that: the Mexico City, the Lisbon, the mm-hmm. you know, Spain, and, and and Thailand. And that experience built up to where my comfort was now outside of what my normal comfort zone was. Most people's right, which was comfort. already pretty wide. <laughs> right, right. Wide and deep. Yeah. yeah. But you think about um, how you're all of that, all of those experiences, even traveling through Europe at 16 for the first time, leaving the country, suddenly you have this experience with being adaptable. Because mm-hmm. when you're traveling like that, even when you have a structured routine and a schedule, you still, I mean, something's always going to happen that you're going to have to switch gears a little bit and sometimes a lot. And so even that experience led you into, oh, okay, I can, I can be okay even when I'm having to switch gears. Like, oh, I, you start building that evidence for yourself yep. that you're going to be okay, that one way or another, you're going to find your way. Yep. So I, I think about that a lot because... Like we had some weird snafus on our trip this time. And um, I have adaptability in my top talents. My husband does not. And what I found is that in general, that's what makes us a good team because he planned everything out. 
He had the car rental set up. He had the places we were going to stay each night, all reserved, all of that stuff. It's when the shit hits hits a fan, when something goes sideways, which it inevitably does. That's when I take over. That's where I shine. Absolutely. And Mm. um, like, for instance, our, our car two days in a row after sleeping overnight, when start, the battery was dead. In these little tiny villages where I didn't speak the language and I did all these pantomime descriptions to help, to get help, to enlist the help of these people, which was awesome. You know, what an experience, right? And I go to Google Translate, battery dead, battery dead, you know, and I'm trying to speak it so that it's understandable. Um, But I just handled it. I didn't panic. There was no, like, there wasn't even real stress about it. And... um, then we had to exchange the car because there's no way we're going to keep driving this car where the battery keeps dying. So um, I ended up using my command, which is in my top strengths as well, which is um, when things are kind of going sideways, I come in and I make sense of the chaos. It's what I do. My husband also has command, but because he doesn't have the adaptability, it doesn't always come out in the best way when it's because of things going sideways. So um, that's when I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. And he said, well, we'll have to drive back to Bari. I said, okay, let's just start to drive back to Bari because that's where the airport is. And that's where Mm -hmm. the car car rental place is. And in the meantime, I will try to prepare them for us. So they know we're coming, you know, so I made the call. I wrote an email. We got everything set up. So when we arrived, they were ready to go. We exchanged the car. We're back on the road in 20 minutes. that's beautiful. But it's because I have all this evidence piled up over the years that I can do this. So if you take that short trip, which a month isn't short, but you go for a month, you start to build the evidence you need so that you can go for a month somewhere else and then a month somewhere else until you start to have the confidence that when things go sideways, you can fix it. Yep. Oh, yeah. And and definitely things things went, went sideways. <laughs> no kidding. So tell me about the thing that went sideways that you're like, oh shit. Okay. Where you actually had that moment of panic, but then worked through it. Yeah. So well, the the first moment of panic was like, what's going on in the world right now? Like, what's this this virus and, and what's it gonna do? And all the uncertainty around that. Which I think I'm okay with some uncertainty but mm-hmm. when it's lasting for so long it's not so great and okay. i needed to have like a home base at one point and you know as a as a u.s citizen we don't need a visa to come to taiwan on a visitor visa so and it's good for 90 days so okay. i arrive in march march april may june i'm going to need to leave or and right. or do something and the way that the visas kind of work in most countries in Asia anyway, if they, they might like in the Philippines of 30 days as a visitor, but you leave on day 29, you come back on day 30 and it starts over again. So it's not like, you know, it's right. So, right. and same for Taiwan, 90 days, I just fly to Hong Kong, fly back two hour flight, same day even, and you just get that stamp and it starts over again. But not when the borders are closed, you can't, right. you can't get a visa. Right. So I was like, how am I going to stay here and not, you know, get into trouble and you know, overstay a visa? Because once you overstay a visa in any, any country, they won't let you back. So 
I was like, oh. So I looked at all the different things that you could, all the different visas. And I was like, oh, student visa. That's what I'll do because I want I wanted to learn Chinese. So I'm going to enroll in the university and start to learn Chinese. And so I called the university and I said, oh, can you get a student visa? Because, yeah, absolutely. You can get a student visa. Are you here now? I was like, yes, I am here now. Okay. So the process is you need to um, apply for your visa. And then go to Hong Kong or Macau and see the embassy there. But you, you, of course, when you get to Hong Kong, you'll have to quarantine for 14 days. And then uh, go to the embassy and uh, get your visa. But we're not allowing student visas to come back into the country. I'm like, well, how is that a solution then? I was like, come on, give me a real solution. That doesn't help me. Yeah, that's (laughs) going to keep me in Macau or it's going to keep me in Hong Kong. And I really don't want to be there. I want to be here. And so I was looking at other ones and they actually have this really cool visa. It's called a, um, they have two, one's an entrepreneur visa mm-hmm. and the oh. other is called a, a rep office. So they kind of act the same way. So the rep office was a little bit easier. So I just created a branch office of my U.S. corporation and set that up here. Got a immigration accountant. It's weird here. Accountants do all the immigration, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but instead of lawyers <laughs> but, it's better than i was just going to say it's better than having lawyers in there because <laughs> they'll make all kinds of complications that are, aren't really necessary <laughs> well the first accountant created lots of stress oh. for me and complications mm. just the timeline wasn't quite right but i i got a, a three-year visa and got a, a year extension and you know so i'm, I'm good for another couple of years uh, here with that with that one visa so it it worked out, but I had to figure out that was the the thing that had to figure out. And um, Brendan Bouchard, um, I don't know if you know, he's like one of the like Tony Robbins types and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has this thing that he says, you know, your ability to figure things out, like that's that's everybody needs to have that ability to just figure things out. And I think that's just in my DNA, and it sounds like it's in your DNA as well. That when shit hits a fan, you don't panic, or maybe there's a little panic, but then it's, okay, well, let's figure it out. There's a solution. There's always a solution to a problem. Always. Absolutely. And I think you have to give yourself some grace for that moment of panic. Mm, Absolutely. Recognize it. I think that's what most people forget to do. They forget to say to themselves, oh, I'm panicking. That's not going to help me because it resets your brain. If you notice it, if you're aware of it, it resets your brain. You can ask any neuroscientist that deals with the um, the reptilian brain that takes over your amygdala and you're full of fear and it's fight or flight. Um, the moment you see it, the moment you go, oh, I can feel my heart rate going up. I'm flushing. I'm getting warm. Um the moment you notice those things about your body, there are things you can do to shut it down, to, to delay that cortisol, to um, boost your serotonin and oxytocin. And um, cause your adrenaline is like, right. And um, what I love about your story is that you, you kind of allowed that you said, of course, I'm uncomfortable with that level of uncertainty. I don't, I don't know anyone that doesn't have, at least that moment of, oh shit, 
right? And so to be able to acknowledge that and say, I am not perfect. Like, of course I have that panic. And then noticing it. And what I like to do is either hug somebody. Like mm-hmm. when luckily I was traveling with my husband. So I could say, okay, I'm I'm feeling like my heart rate is up too high. I'm I can't think, I can't be a problem solver. I can't mm-hmm. figure it out if my heart rate's like this. I'm just I, I'm not in that my my amygdala is shutting down my thinking brain. So I'll look at my husband and say, okay. Put your bags down. We need to just hug for a minute. Just hug. And um, we did that one time when things were like, okay, this is not so great. I actually reached over and I held his hand because we were at our apartment in BS. We found out that all the flights on the day we were supposed to come back were canceled because there was a labor strike in Italy. (laughs) All the the trains are shut down and it's just a one day, you know, warning shot by the the laborers saying, uh, we're going to shut down for one day. Let's see what happens. And then you're going to negotiate with us. Right. So we knew it was likely to just be one day and we didn't panic at all. It was like this moment of, okay, what are we going to do? We're flexible. My husband has a great job, great employers. I'm self-employed. I can put off appointments if I need to. And I, I literally reached over at the table and held his hand. And that action right there, that affection actually slows down the production of cortisol. Physically. I'm going to do that next time. Yeah. A random stranger and just go hug. <laughs> you know, I, so that, that's do- another story. I would do that too. Um, but here's, here's another story. I was stressing coming back from my father's funeral in 2014. Mm-hmm. And I was stuck in the Philadelphia airport for a big snowstorm that had come through. And all I wanted to do was be home. I had just left my brother and sister and cousins who had all shown up for this funeral. It was February, you know, heavy snow. And all I wanted to do was be at home with my kids and my my husband and our dog. I really wanted to be with my dog. <laughs> And I remember sitting down and just bawling my eyes out, which is so unusual for me, because again, I'm one of those people, I'm like, I can figure this out. But I was overwhelmed, my emotions were on high, and this woman was walking by, and I was just kind of getting myself together. And she looked at me and she said, okay, this might sound weird, but you look like you could use a hug, and I'm a hugger. Do you want that. And I stood up and I actually didn't, not in my brain, my heart did, my brain did not. And Mm. I was like, but I felt like she was putting herself out there in such a beautiful way that I didn't want to deny that. So I hugged her and I'm telling you this rush, this flood of oxytocin, like I felt it immediately and she held me and then I, I could solve my problem. So yeah, if you ask, like, um, I'm yeah. kind of stressing here. Are you stressing? I could use a hug. I know it sounds a little weird. <laughs> and if they say no, you say, okay, okay. But actually, you can hug yourself. You can actually yes. wrap your arms around yourself mm. and hug yourself yeah. and breathe. Oh, yeah. And that does almost the same thing. It's not quite the same, but it does help. Oh, that's beautiful. Or even thinking about something that makes you happy. Like one Mm -hmm. of the things I did when I hugged her was I was imagining my dog. Uh, Yeah. And you think about something that makes you happy, that brings you calm. 
that also can interrupt that flow. Nice. Good, good tip. I could have used that a couple of weeks ago. Um, a friend of mine and I went to Korea for a long weekend and it was kind of like what you're describing with Italy before like raining the first two days had dinner at the Korea, the uh, Seoul tower, which was completely, you couldn't even see out of it. It was, it was, it was so bad. <laughs> I know, I was like, oh. But the food was amazing. So at least okay. that was good. It was, it was a rotating restaurant oh. I mean, at the highest point in Seoul. And like, can't see shit. <laughs> it's like, it's amazing. Like being on you the know. Eiffel Tower and it being full yeah. of fog and you can't see Paris. Yeah. <laughs> you can't see Paris from here. <laughs> that night we went out and just kind of hanging out at some bars and then going to, couldn't find a taxi to take us back to the hotel for two hours. Oh. They didn't really have Uber and the apps were all in Korean and you had to download and, up, and it was just, it was all this pain to just, and I was just like, let's just walk. They're like, no. It's like having this tantrum. I was like, dude, let's just, let's just walk. And, you know, if a cab comes by, we'll just flag it down. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But, you know, yeah, we're three miles away, but could use your, <laughs> got 20,000 steps in that day. So that was yeah, I bet you did. <laughs> So what was the turning point when you think about it, the turning point between being like, damn, like, ah, this is so frustrating and going, oh, let's just walk. What was, what do you think that was? For me, it's what do I have control over and what do I not have control over? And and this has taken a good 50 years to figure out. (laughs) Tell me about it. (laughs) And 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 two hours. (laughs) I was like, I can't, I can't control this. Like there's, I I can't control the weather. I can't control the app. I can't control a taxi. What I can control is my emotion. And I can choose to have a tantrum and make this the worst day ever, or I can make this an adventure, which would be more fun. Okay, I'll throw a tantrum for two seconds, and then I'll go have my adventure. For, for two hours, right. <laughs> however you want to call it. Right. That's and so, so and cool. That's just a choice that we all have to right. make. So how yeah. did you finally, I, I know your friend was not in that place yet. They were still mm. in that. So yeah. when when was the moment that you're imagining this? I'm right there with you, by the way. I love yeah. this story. So you're you're like trying to explain to your friend what else are we going to do? Let's solve this problem and yeah. just start walking. So yeah. when was the turning point for your friend? When we got back to the hotel. Oh, so he bitched you the no whole turning, way? There was no turning point at all. He was pissed the entire time walking back. Why are they walking? I can't find a cab anywhere. Like, so the reason I asked that was um, I've learned so much from being a parent. Mm. <laughs> so much. And one of the biggest things was when um, my older son, Jacob, was in middle school and I talked his good mood into a bad mood by accident. We're driving mm-hmm. to school. He said, oh, yeah, today's going to be a good day. And he was struggling. His grades were in the toilet. I mean, it was it was a struggle. And we hadn't had him diagnosed with ADHD. And so he was, yeah, it was a problem. And um, 
I'm like, that's so great. You're going to do so well today. And he's like, yeah. And I said, and you're going to talk to your math teacher and you're going to turn in your homework. And, and I see him gradually diminishing in the seat next to me. And I couldn't shut myself up. I'm trying to dig myself out of this hole instead of just stopping. Mm-hmm. So uh, a couple years later, he's in the car to go to high school. His younger brother is in the car to go to middle school. And his younger brother had hit his toe, stubbed his toe on something that his older brother had left out. And all morning, you know, half an hour of, wah, 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 he left it out and I hit my toe. Nee, 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 just like grumpy and snitty and just like really unpleasant. And we get in the car and he's still complaining. And finally, we're almost to the school. And I said, hey, you know, you have a choice here. You can stay grumpy for as long as you need to stay grumpy. Just know that that's your choice. Because what happened happened half an hour ago. And nothing's going to change what happened half an hour ago. So you can be grumpy and your friends aren't going to really want to be around you. Because nobody really wants to be around that. And that's fine if that's what you choose. But just know that you're making a choice here. And we get to the school and I stopped. Yeah. (laughs) I just stopped. I learned this lesson from the older brother. And I'm like, oh, Sarah, just shut up. So I stopped. I closed my mouth. And luckily, the older brother, who's usually pretty quiet anyway, sitting in the back, not saying a word. He knows not to to push the buttons of the younger brother who has a temper. Okay. So I stopped the car and I said, have a good day, Max. And he was getting out. He was just about to slam the door because, you know, he's still fuming as anyone would, especially in the middle of all those hormones. And I said, I love you, Max. And he turned around and he came back across the front seat to kiss me on the cheek and say, I know, mom, it's a choice. And he went off to school. And I think about that all the time for myself when I get like that. And even in this trip to Italy where it was raining so much, I knew my attitude was a choice. I And honestly, Tom, I honestly chose to stay a little grumpy. Mm. Like, this is okay for me to be a little grumpy. This is not what I had in mind. I can't fix this. I'm I'm just going to be okay with being grumpy for a little while. Yeah, it's, it, it really is all about choice. Like life is choices, right? And we can either accept the choices that we make or or not. Exactly. So let's bring this full circle. Tell me about a recent client experience that you had um, that really lit you up, that really energized you. And what I'm asking you to do is tell our audience what you do without telling us what you do. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Great. So um, this actually happened a, a while ago when I first started doing the storytelling um, and and storytelling with the with the purpose of selling a, a service. So that's kind of the, the angle that I have. So um, I was working with this uh, silver medalist of the Atlanta Olympic Games. And uh, she was just an amazing, amazing person. She was. She grew up in Africa, in a small village in in Africa, and she 
uh, came came to me first because she was like, "Hey, I want to like tell my story, but I'm really afraid of telling my story because it is a little embarrassing, and I'm not sure if people would like it or not, or if it would even help me with my business." I was like, "Oh, let's let's explore. Like, tell me." And she tells me her story, her life story, and I'm just like, oh. "We're both crying." Like as she's telling, I'm like. This is an amazing story. You're an amazing person. I can't believe that you went through this. So basically, as she was a child, when she turned 11 or 12, her family married her off to a 50-year-old man for money. So basically sold her as and uh, away. And she did not want to do this, uh, of course. And she was like, I'm going to you know, I, I need to run away. And so she did run away and, and had some trials and tribulations along her running away. But that was the, that was the key of her story was the running away because that's what started her. She's now a runner. Running. She's a runner. Right. Run, and forest, she, run. Exactly. It was a, a completely that, that almost that story. And, and she met some missionaries that brought her in and helped her kind of escape the the problem, the family issues in the village and, you know, gave her an education, started her on her athletic training, you know, she, and ultimately moved to the U.S., you know, was accepted into the uh, Olympic Games in Atlanta, and I forget what year that was, and then won the silver and running a, a relay race. And it was in her kind of just that transformation of her going, oh, I'm really I'm really afraid of telling the story because it was a very emotional story. And, but the way that we, we crafted it. And then when she presented that story, she said the audience was laughing, they were crying. And at the end gave her a standing ovation. And not only that, Sarah, but in the next six months of her business doubled. Because she kept telling that story to other people and they just gravitated towards her. And they're like, this is awesome. I like you as a person. I could use a trainer like you as she's a fitness trainer. And her business took off. And she was selling without selling. She was just right. telling her story and, and giving a, a subtle offer. Which is so and, and that really lit me up because, you know, especially when she sent me the the note after her first speech and said, I got a standing ovation. I was like, of course you did. <laughs> There's no doubt in my mind you would. Of course. Yeah. Wow. Tom, that is such a good story. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you for sharing that. Mm. Wow. And thank you for spending the time with me today. Of course. Appreciate you. Listeners, your stories don't define you, but how you tell them will. Now it's your turn. When will you take a small step out of your comfort zone into your stretch zone so that you can take more of those steps, gradually seeing all of the improvements and the changes and the satisfaction you get from doing those small steps out of your comfort zone? Those things that scare you a little bit will scare you less and less so that the bigger things that really scare you now won't feel so overwhelming when you're ready to take that step. Thank you for joining us. 
Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile if you just smile.